Hello and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual church classroom Bible study offered by Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Shiloh United Methodist Church. I am Pastor Dan and Shiloh United Methodist Church is located in Jasper, Indiana. We are offering this as another way of reaching our members and friends around the community and around the world to uh, share Bible study together, to observe God's Word with all of our heart and all of our mind so that we might come to know the very heart and mind of our God who has sent, sent us a message in Scripture that tells us so much about the very heart and mind of our Creator. So that's our goal. We are at uh, episode 34 of the Revelation Bible study. We're going to begin in a moment to look at chapter 20. So we're coming down to the end of the book. And uh, it's exciting to think that we've completed the book together. We've uh, answered a lot, considered a lot, but we probably have left plenty undone. So we may have to come back to it again sometime in the next few years but uh, for now we will do as we always do and that's start with worship today's podcast is recorded on january 10th 2019 and our psalm reading is psalm 35 a Psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and buckler. Arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them, since they hid their net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me. May ruin overtake them by surprise." May the net they hid entangle me, uh, entangle them, and may they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. My whole being will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and the needy from those who rob them. Ruthless witnesses come forward. They question me on things I know nothing about. They repay evil for good and leave my soul forlorn. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Attackers gathered against me when I was unaware. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. O oh Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my life from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly among throngs of people, 
I will praise you. Let not those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Let not those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye. They do not speak peaceably, but, I, but devise false accusations against those who live quietly in the land. They gape at me and say, Aha! Aha! With our own eyes we have seen it. O Lord, you have seen this. Be not silent. Do not uh, be far from me, O Lord. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. Vindicate me in your righteousness, O Lord my God. Do not let them gloat over me. Do not let them think, aha, just what we wanted, or say we have swallowed him up. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. May those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, The Lord be exalted, who delights in the well-being of his servant. My tongue will speak of your righteousness and of your praises all day long. Contend, O oh Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and rise up to help me. Thou the spear and javelin against those who chase after me. Say to my soul, I'm your salvation. Let them be shamed, dishonor those who seek my life, and be turned back, who plan evil for me. me for wind. Almighty God, this is a tough uh, psalm to read. It, it sounds like, it sounds like something we're all familiar with when we feel totally misunderstood and and we're confused about your response to the evil that seems to be coming down upon us as we imagine David experiencing the emotions he's expressing in this psalm it's easy for us to understand why because we know the story but in our own story Lord how do we respond to evil that is directed against us false accusations character assassinations uh, harsh criticism that is unjust and unjustifiable will God have mercy on us when we suffer unfairly and Lord contend with those who would contend with me when I'm righteous in your sight on the other hand Lord Please correct us and guide us towards a more faithful witness for your sake so that we might not be like that in our own way. Well, God, as we study your word today and we hear the culmination of your plan and we hear of how the works and deeds will be judged, let us be righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ, but help us, Lord, to be so sanctified that we are moving and living and breathing and speaking in words and deeds that show your righteousness within us. So that if we are being criticized, if we are being rejected, if we are being accused, 
we can know in our hearts like the psalmist that it's not justified and that you will come to our aid. This we pray along with all the unnamed things in our gathering of students and friends as we pray together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Bethany, we're getting to the end of the road here. We've are, uh, we are coming back from a break, so the people who are listening in real time have been waiting for a couple, almost three weeks mm -hmm. for this. Um, anyway, we left off with Chapter 19, and uh, this is one of those cases where the people who came along later in history and added chapters and verses didn't exactly do us a favor. We're, we're always going to be beholden to the ones who gave us chapters and verses because it gives us a way to work our way through the book together. Um, but sometimes it creates inco uh, incongruity, shall we say. Um, so before we read chapter 20, uh, I'd like for you to start by reading... Um, from chapter 19, a few verses into 19, and then just pass right on through to uh, chapter 20, and I think it'll be obvious why. And you'll probably be able to tell when you've hit a good stopping point. So, you can I ask me? a question about well, that first? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just curious like, whoever did the breaking down into parts obviously thought for some reason that that was a good break. So, like, when you were in seminary or anything, did they talk about what the decision making process was? Because like you're like you're saying, it'll make more sense if we read it through. But somebody thought it made more sense to make a break there. So well, I'm curious about that. When I was in seminary, there were a couple of explanations given over. You know, my seminary story is kind of interesting, but <laughs> I was just telling somebody about this the other day. That that you know basically. Um, well, it was last night, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. We were talking about it in the Bible study, and I just said, well, you know, I went to a school in Chicago and got a certificate, and then I went to a school in Dayton and got a degree, but I've basically been through seminary twice, in a, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> that's not entirely true, but that's, that's essentially true when it comes to things like Bible and stuff like that. Anyway, so I've heard a few different versions over the last 25 years or so, and the one that seems to explain these occasional incongruities uh, is that basically it was uh, publishing people who did this because if you look at a typical printed Bible, the column widths of the Bibles are the same as the ones in your newspaper. 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's because when you want something published, you go to people who do a lot of publishing. And, uh, you know, that's typically newspapers and periodicals and so forth. And so the explanation that I heard was, is that basically um, people who printed the Bibles for you formatted everything so that it was the most efficient use of page space and paper and, and all of that. And so some of the little inconsistencies where it feels like we should have just left the chapter thing out and just moved right through could be attributed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original sort of scholarly approach to to putting reference points in the Bible so that it's easier to search and communicate with other Bible studiers, scholars, um, is that, you know, as a matter of opinion. Somebody's opinion was that this was a transitional point. Um, but you read a lot of books, and there's a difference between the way the Bible transitions from one chapter to another and the way common literature transitions oh, yeah, from one sure. chapter to another. So, so these chapters... Yeah, most book chapters don't start with and. Right. So, so chapters in the Bible really don't correlate or, or, or uh, is that the right word? You know, they don't... If you read a lot of books, then you probably will find the chapters difficult to understand in the Bible because you're trying to make it seem like, you know, it's a, it's a transition of some kind. Um, but really, it's just a division point for the sake of finding illegal documents and official proceedings and so forth. They just number every line, you know, and they'll say document 127, mm-hmm. page 14, line 132, you know. And that's more like what the numbering in the Bible is like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's meant to be a way to find your way around in it. Um, so I, I mean, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, well, you want to go ahead and read us through a little bit here and you're starting at what, uh, Revelation 19 verse 19. Mm-hmm. Then I saw the beast and the Kings of the earth and their enemies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him, the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Stop. Mm-hmm. Well, so you could see why I had you do that, because mm-hmm. it really flows normally, doesn't it? It, it, makes, it makes a clearer picture of what was going on there, and and uh, the people listening, if they weren't following along in their Bibles, probably had no idea when you transferred from one chapter to another. So nice, nice work. So thanks. And and that helps us paint a picture here. So what's happened is, is that all the people who had given themselves over to the beast, um, which is the one world ruler and taken his mark, well, they were condemned for taking the mark. 
all of the armies that gathered to fight the Lord were defeated by the word that came out of Jesus's mouth. End of story. Mm -hmm. And then he rounds up the uh, remaining leaders, in this case, the dragon, that is the serpent, the devil, Satan, and uh, binds him. Now, here's what I want to point out, because I think this is so cool. I didn't come up with this. It's right there. But I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So an angel. Yeah, and if that's not my buddy Michael, then well, I don't know who. I know, I know, and I, I like that. I do. I really do. But the point I want to make is, is that any angel that God says, go do it, well, yeah. Can take Satan down. That's well, all. yeah, that, that is true. That's the point I'm trying to make. There are people, and, and I, wanna, I want my listeners to really think about this for a minute and ask your family and friends. If they are believers on any level, have they been tempted to imagine Satan as sort of a counterpart to Jesus? Mm. That would be incorrect. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Satan is an angel. Yeah, he's a counterpart he's, to the angels. Yeah, he's a fallen angel. He's not... Jesus has no equal or, or like, paradoxical opposite. That's mm -hmm. Satan is not, like, a negative Jesus. Now, if you think about our popular culture and literature, mm -hmm. movies, TV, all of that, the, the whole concept of good versus evil always comes down to basically two equal forces. One's good, one's evil. There's nothing equal about Satan to Jesus. He's God. He, he with the word of his mouth, wipes out million-man army. You know, um, he sends an angel to chain up and cast Satan into the abyss. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I just, I think that's a really profound statement yeah. there that, that could be easily overlooked. And I think that there's a great temptation among Christians and, and you know, just kind of social... Uh, believers, you know, people mm -hmm. who say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in good and evil. And, and in their minds, they would probably be easily tempted to think that somehow, you know, Jesus is, uh, uh, is, is the son of God and somehow, you know, Satan is his evil twin or something. And that's just not correct. Yeah. Not, not on any level. Yeah. Satan is a fallen angel. And, uh, the angels who are still faithful to the Lord, all they have to do is get permission and they can chain him up and cast him into the abyss. So I, I just think that's really neat and it's easy to overlook. Uh, that's something that I think is really a vital truth for all believers. Yeah. And it says that he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that it would no longer, so he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years are completed. So is there any question about where nations go wrong and who's behind it? Um, yeah, I mean, that's For pretty... a thousand years, he's not going to be around to deceive the nations. Yeah. And so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's another really profound statement. This is one of the reasons I tell people to read the book of Revelation. 
because I think I know more about Jesus and the nature of things from reading the book of Revelation than from a lot of other sources because because of statements like this. Yeah. So the Bible says if the nations are screwed up, it's because Satan has been deceiving them. In the same way he deceived Eve. There's no difference. Yep. You know, so he tells he tells Eve, you know, did God really say that you would die if you ate that fruit? And then he whispers in some general's ear, some president's ear, some dictator's ear, mm-hmm. you know all your problems are because of those people. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's it's the same thing. It's it's the same kind of deception. Um and but it does it's interesting that, that there's a statement here that there will be uh, a time when he gets set back out again. Yeah. Um, any any thoughts before we read on? Well, this may be a really weird rabbit hole to go down, but I'm gonna risk it. So as soon as I was reading the part about locking him in, like throwing him in the abyss and locking him in and sealing it, right. I was thinking about Greek and Roman mythology, and I've talked to you about this before. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but one of my favorite things that I have discovered as a student of history and literature is that the, Sorry, folks. The, the world and its cultures give evidence of God and creation without even knowing they are. And what I mean yeah. by that is that every culture has a creation myth. So if you like, if you study mythology and you study culture, you will eventually find a creation myth, how, how their culture came to be. And the really wild, awesome thing is that consistently it sounds really similar to the beginning of this book. Uh-huh. And so Good where, point. well, so where I'm going with this is that Greek and Roman mythology has this, this mythology that goes along with the beginning of their world, but, but it sounds so similar to this that Zeus and the other gods and goddesses of, of Greek culture, of Greek mythology, that they rose up against this group of, of beings called the Titans, which were these kind of similar to God, but not yeah. creatures um, who were really bad and wreaking some havoc on the earth. Um, and they rose up against them and Zeus bound them and threw them into an abyss and locked and sealed it. So that they couldn't escape. And why why I'm saying all of this is that that's wild to me because that would have been a story that was pre-Bible. And yet it sounds really similar to this. Yep. So like... And no, the reason, you, so I, the reason I'm tying that to the... I know the where cre- you're going yeah, with this. The reason I'm tying it to the creation myths is that like... Truths have a way of coming out no matter what. Yeah. Truth is truth and... And even in Greek mythology, which is super, super in opposition to pretty much all of our theological views, there's a lot of similarity to a lot of things that we hear throughout the Bible. And even like we're reading Revelation right now, that shouldn't maybe have any tie-ins to Greek and Roman mythology or any other mythos, but it does. Well, And that's kind of awesome. So you and I have talked about a lot of this stuff. A lot over the years and so it's really hard to be succinct for the sake of the podcast (laughs) but but I've mentioned in previous podcasts and in our conversations this gap theory that 
sort of describes the creation of the world, but not necessarily the creation of the garden and, and Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and how there's sort of between chapter one and chapter two, there's this gap that, that is there. Yeah. That, and, and we don't know how long the gap is. But then later on in Genesis, we understand that there was chaos. There were weird creatures that there were all kinds of bizarre things going on. And it was so bizarre that God eventually, chapter 6 of Genesis, says, I, you know, this is getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, uh, it's like God, you know, wipes it all out for the sake of preserving Noah's bloodline because it's pure all the way back to Adam. So he's keeping Adam's line going all the way uh to jesus and so forth and the redemption but but if you look at the whole grand picture what you find is is that there are all kinds of weird and mysterious things in the bible that aren't really as weird and mysterious as they seem yeah but you have to open your mind to the possibility that some of the stuff that you thought was mythological maybe wasn't yeah at Um, some point it might have actually existed that there were certain things that were real yeah. And and uh, that's why even though I'm, you know, uh, I mean, seminary twice, you know, not because I failed the first time, but because I went for a certificate <laughs> the first time and went back for a degree the second time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm an educated, intelligent person. I'm not fooled and I'm, I'm not naive. I'm saying after having been very thoughtful and educated and studying and doing my homework and listening to a variety of opinions it takes a heck of a lot more faith to believe in some of the weird explanations people come up with for what happens in the Bible so that it doesn't use anything bizarre or otherworldly, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, just like when I talk about the Star of Bethlehem, we, we just came off a of Christmas break, you know, and I talk about it as, a, as basically, um, you know, the window to heaven and somebody left the light on. I mean, it, it's I'm joking, but, well, it's, but kind of... it's easier for me to imagine... A hole in space time in our reality or, or our, our unreality, if that could be said. And and it's easier to imagine that that space, that little window being opened and the light of glory from heaven shining through. And of course, it's always where Jesus is because mm-hmm. they're keeping an eye on him when mm-hmm. he's a baby and he's vulnerable. So no wonder people who know what they're looking at can follow it right to him. Mm -hmm. Well, I personally find that a whole lot easier to believe than that somehow it was a meteor or a comet or or a supernova or something. Because that would just be an explanation for a bright star in the sky. It wouldn't explain how it happened right where and when it was supposed to happen. And that it was so easy for the wise men, for example, to just follow it to Jesus. Well, it's sort of funny when you think, like, our whole belief system is built on the idea that God's son was born on Earth Mm -hmm. and became a human, too, and then died, Mm -hmm. but didn't die because he, I mean, he died, but then he came back, and in a resurrected form. It's really funny that we can believe all that, but we can't believe some more to me basic weird bizarre stuff yeah like our whole belief system is construed by some people as mythology well and if you think if you think about it and and this is a different topic than i thought we'd be on at this point (laughs) 
Sorry. But if you think about it, it really comes back to the basic problem of secular humanism and pride. And we have a lot of secular humanism in church, a lot of people who would say, I find that impossible to believe, therefore it can't be true. Well, that's a pretty dang proud thing to say, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really arrogant thing to say. Because I find that difficult to believe, it can't be true. Oh, I see. Because you're so important in the grand scheme of things that what you find difficult to believe uh, matters. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't take myself that seriously, and I've devoted myself to not taking myself that seriously simply because I've witnessed such arrogance. And you know what? In the seminaries, mm -hmm. in the churches, among the clergy. But really, it's anybody who has not really grasped that the whole purpose of Jesus taking up the cross was so that we could take up our own crosses, that, that Jesus died on the cross so that people could be saved from the sin that naturally separates them from God. And then he gives us the ability through the invitation to the Holy Spirit to try to become more like him. And there's nothing that could be more like him than surrendering your will to the will of the Heavenly Father. And so at the end of the day, that's not all that complicated because it really means that you've decided that God's will is more important than your own will. Mm -hmm. So if God's book says that once upon a time there were some strange creatures on the earth and God created a mighty, gigantic, worldwide cataclysmic flood to get rid of them and that he said he'd never have to do that again and the next time he took, you know, got rid of everything it would be with fire and you know what i find that easy to believe because i've put myself out of the picture and just accepted what i see which is really the whole premise of our bible study called knowing god with heart and mind and the whole premise behind this revelation bible study mm -hmm. has been read the book and just see what it says mm -hmm. Now, sometimes I get really tempted to say, now turn back to Isaiah and read this. Interpret and, and I want to do that because the fact is the best interpreter of the Bible is the mm -hmm. Bible. But for the purpose of this Revelation Bible study, I've tried to discipline myself to keep us just reading the words and dealing with what they say. And then dealing with it as people who are informed by other parts of Scripture, but not necessarily trying to prove what we've decided Mm -hmm. more you know because at the end of the day this knowing god with heart and mind is a challenge to be critically thinking skills uh critically thinking christians with critical thinking skills you know so so i'm honoring our premise mm -hmm. by approaching it the way we're we're doing it you know uh, anyway got on my soapbox a little <laughs> bit there but that's that's like you know as we're coming to the end of this thing i think it's important to reiterate that that's how we started and we've been faithful throughout for the most part, I, I'm sure there were digressions and, <laughs> you know, days when I wasn't feeling as well or something. But that was always the goal. Yeah. I mean, we've been working on this for a year. Oh, uh, yeah. Almost. Probably. You know, it's there's been a while. 52 weeks in the year and we're on episode 34. And we didn't do it every single week mm -hmm. because of vacations and other things. And I was doing it with you before we started doing Revelation. Yeah. So for, it's probably been. Yeah. So, you know, we've been doing Revelation for probably eight nine maybe 10 or 11 months something it's like been that a little while so we've been in this book a while folks um all right let's get back to the text yes. i i think we said some important things but i'm ready to get back to uh to the text so um 
So verse 4 of chapter 20, why don't you start with that and, and take us down to uh, the end of verse 6. Okay. I saw thrones on which seated those on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay. I'm not done. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I looked away for a second. Go on. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have parts in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. I knew it ended with a thousand years. <laughs> okay. So this needs some interpretation because this is confusing, especially, you know, if you just read the whole chapter. So so what's being described here, it's, it's think of the continuity. That's why we backed up into chapter 19 a little bit. So now these thrones appear and on these thrones are people who were given authority to judge. Um, that may be a reference to uh, the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus, which is mentioned in, in uh, Paul's writings. Um, he says in, uh, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians uh, or all of Second Corinthians 5, basically. And then uh, it talks about Jesus judging the saints. And the judgment that this is referring to is not a judgment of, of guilt or innocence. It's more like being scored, like at the Olympics. You know, you, you perform your routine, and then you stand there and wait for the judges to give you your score. That, that the language is used here by Paul to describe Jesus sort of scoring the way we lived out our, what I call sanctification. But, but you know, he's not, he's, it's not a question of whether you've been forgiven or not. It's a question of what kind of rewards you're going to get for having lived faithfully with your Christian, living out your Christian life. So, you know, you're born a, you're born a human being, born of the, of, of the, the water of the womb, as Jesus said, and then you're reborn of the spirit. And so basically he's judging your life after your new birth. Mm -hmm. And, and the rewards are, are uh, basically as Paul describes it, positions of authority and so forth in God's future plans or okay. Jesus's future plans. And so then you go back and you see where in chapter 20, and I just did that thing I said I wasn't going to do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, but but for this point, this is this is because we're not going to be able to make sense of this if we don't understand that there's more than one judgment being spoken of. And there's more than one kind of judgment being spoken of, because Jesus's judgment of the saints, the believers who aren't in this picture that we just read about. OK, everything we're reading here does not include the raptured church. Okay. Right. Except it could be that some of the raptured church people have come back to do the judging here <laughs> because that's their reward is they've been given an authority and that, that, like I said, go back to Paul's description of Jesus, the judgment. So, okay. So then it says that, uh, 
these people who had been beheaded. It's very specific because of their testimony for Jesus. You remember that at this point in the rule of the beast, the, the one rule, one world ruler, at that point, you either took his mark or you suffered the consequences. Yeah. And Jesus says, if you take the mark, you're going to suffer. So there's basically two kinds of dead here in this passage. There are those who have died because Jesus just put them to death and they died with the mark. And there are those who were killed for keeping the faith who are now alive again. Mm -hmm. And so when it says that they are the dead uh, who came to life and experienced this first resurrection, he's not talking about the first resurrection is the resurrection of the uh, of the tribulation saints. Mm -hmm. So the tribulation saints who were killed did not take the mark, have just been resurrected. But everybody else who's dead is still dead. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is saying. Yeah. So there are two kinds of dead people in this particular set of passages. The ones who are resurrected by Jesus because they kept the faith and the ones who were killed by Jesus because they took the mark and they're still dead. Yeah. Okay. So, so the score at this point, you know, it's like we're getting ready to go to a commercial break. So, so the score is... Satan's locked up. His henchmen are in the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. The dead who took the mark are dead. That's just, that's it. And they're doomed to a second death is what it's saying. Yeah. That the dead who had the mark, they're dead, but they're going to get even deader, which really, as it'll say here later, they're going to end up in that lake of fire too. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are those who have become the first resurrected of the, of the, you know, yeah. This period. And uh, so that's the blessing of chapter or verse six. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. There won't be a second death for them. They've been resurrected and they're alive and they're going to stay alive. They're not going into the lake of fire. Right. Uh, and uh, they're actually going to be priests of God and of Christ. And they're going to reign with him over this thousand year period, which is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, when the thousand years are completed, verse seven, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. And the number is like the sand of the sea. So guess what? Even though he wasn't around, so what it's telling us is that during the millennial reign of Jesus, during that thousand year reign, there are still nations and there are still people who are opposed to Jesus. So basically the army that's been wiped out here, this massive army that got wiped out. And remember, think about it. But when we saw the destruction of Babylon, some of the rulers of the other nations were looking on at a distance and they were kind of saying good riddance. They mm -hmm. didn't like the one world ruler. Yeah. But they're not that doesn't make them good <laughs> mm -hmm. and so now for a thousand years they're existing without being deceived by satan but this is a really interesting observation and i heard chuck missler say this not long ago is if you think about it people who sin in those days have a double curse because they don't have an excuse mm -hmm. you know they don't have any excuses because during the thousand year reign Satan's not tempting them. 
there's no need to steal from your neighbor because everybody's going to have enough. There's no need to attack or harm anyone else or to do anything that would reflect Satan's evil. Mm -hmm. But apparently, when Satan's left out again, after the thousand years, he won't have any trouble finding people to tempt. Now, but but during that thousand years, he's locked up, but he's not gone. Like he's in the abyss, but he's not. Like he hasn't been thrown into that like a fire. He hasn't, so he's still in existence. So he's not there. Like he can't be there to tempt and stuff, but his damage is still there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. I thought maybe you're gonna say that you know he was. Uh, like like some of these mob guys that are in the prisons and they still have a way of controlling things well, outside. I don't think that's the case here. But um, but his like the damage that he's done over millennia yeah. still exists. Well, and I think that's the definition of Gog and Magog in this case. Now, there's a whole line of debate we could get into <laughs> about Gog and Magog. It sounds like they, something out of Lord of the Rings. Well, they appeared earlier in the story. And they seem to be around still. I, folks, you're going to be mad at me, but I'm not going to deal with Gog and Magog as they're being mentioned here for the second time. I think the more important thing that's being told to us is, is that there are still nations and there are still people who have not accepted Christ, but they also have the benefit of not having accepted the one world ruler either. So they're kind of... They're, they're, they haven't chosen their sides, so to speak. And so... You mean they're wishy-washy and they're lukewarm? They're wishy-washy and lukewarm, yeah. Huh. And some people ask, and I have asked this question in the years past, you know, why is there a thousand-year reign and why is there uh, opportunity to sin? Well, the thing to keep in mind is, is the church still isn't in the picture yet. The church is still partying in heaven right now. This is the earth with Jesus in charge, Satan gone, and the remaining humanity given a chance, a thousand years in fact, and not dying either, by the way. So the remaining humanity has this opportunity to accept or reject Christ without Satan there to trick them into rejecting Christ. So mm -hmm. if they reject him, it will be entirely because of their own pride. And that becomes important when we read what comes next. Yeah. Are you tracking with me? Yeah, I was just wondering, in that thousand years, are there, like, are children born in that time? Or is it just these people? You know, I'm not sure, because there's nothing here that really says that. Um... Their numbers are like the sand. Verse 9 says, They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Sounds like we're back in Jerusalem, and it sounds like that's still the place where the believers in Jesus go, and it sounds like that's where Jesus is because he is reigning on earth at this time. Mm -hmm. On uh, David's throne, remember, Gabriel told Mary, mm -hmm that one day he would sit on David's throne mm -hmm. and that hasn't happened yet, but here it is. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is ruling during this millennial reign. He's ruling from David's throne in Jerusalem. And this is where the saints have gone to gather around him. So apparently if you don't want to be near him, 
you're probably somewhere along the the continuum of you know flat out going to hell well to the lake of fire or better make up your mind soon time's running out kind you know what i mean then it says verse 10 the devil who deceived them was thrown into the no wait 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 let me back up uh the fire came down from heaven and consumed them okay so so gog and magog comes after them and uh you know surrounds the city and fire comes down and wipes them out end of story they were disposed of as quickly as the uh, armageddon battle and the million man army that, mm -hmm. that went against jesus but then it says the devil who deceived them was thrown in. so he's released after the the uh, thousand years and he's the one that's tricked them. So their lack of commitment to Jesus made them vulnerable to Satan's deception. There's a real point there that should be taken. So once again, Revelation isn't what you think it is. It's telling you something that's good to know right here and right now. Your lack of commitment to Jesus makes you an easier target for Satan. Mm -hmm. It's never been any different. And at the end, it's going to be the destruction of these people because the lake of the fire is not a good thing. <laughs> no. It's not like you're going to be skiing on asbestos water skis or asbestos boats or anything. It's, it's you know, people talk about how, well, I'd rather, you know, party with the hell in hell with the sinners than pluck a harp and, and have it, you know. I would not. Don't be naive and don't make jokes like that. Satan... It, it, hell is not something you want to go to and and it's not it, there's nothing about it that's going to be desirable in any way shape or form and you really shouldn't be flippant and joke about it and the reality is is at the, at the end of it all you're gone that's it um you know this lake of fire is basically going to be like a cauldron that cooks you for all eternity and uh just sounds like something I don't want to do and uh, don't want anybody I love or anyone I know or anyone I know of or any human being should I don't want that to happen to him but anyway then they because it says they'll be tormented and it says that the lake of fire of sulfur and the beast and the false prophet they're there and you know they've been cooking down there the whole thousand years while Satan's been in jail then verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. And earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. Every time you hear images like this, it's God. Like Jesus is a presence that we can apparently experience safely. <laughs> God, we cannot experience safely. Uh when it says here, I don't think it's being figurative exactly. I'm I'm thinking that it's the same imagery that we've seen throughout the Bible. And whenever God actually puts in an appearance on earth, it is so overwhelming that it feels like nothing else is there. Yeah. Like like you could be standing in front of, of the Rocky Mountain range. You know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of mountains could be right in front of you. God appears and there's nothing you can see. And it's as though all of that went away because there's nothing left but the presence of God, you know. Mm -hmm. And and then it says, uh, I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. 
um, this would be those who were dead and were not resurrected in the first resurrection and they're being judged by God and uh, it says that, that uh, the sea gave up its dead and all that were in it and then uh, and death and Hades gave up their dead. Now in this case it's not talking about hell it's talking about Hades like Sheol. It's talking about the place where the dead are. Uh, don't want to offend my Catholic friends and family, but you know, I'm more inclined to think of purgatory, the doctrine of purgatory that's taught in the Catholic Church as Hades or Sheol, which is not, shouldn't be offensive, but it's a better way to explain the idea of purgatory in my mind. Um, it just means you go to the place where where dead people have been going for as long as there have been people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, doesn't sound like much fun. I'd rather go directly to heaven. So anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, then um, the, uh, da, 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 I lost my place. And they were judged according to their works. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's one of my favorite lines. Yeah. That's awesome. Death, and, death gets thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, and and there's no more Sheol anymore. There's yeah. no there's no more. I mean, that's gone. Um, there's no limbo. There's no you know middle ground. It's all it's all. This is where it all becomes absolute. This is the second death. The lake of fire, mm-hmm. and all of those who died with that mark on them basically were judged and sent to the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And how do you get your name written in the book of life? Tell him, Bethany. Jesus. You got it. My favorite. You got it. You get your name written in the book of life because Jesus made that possible. So if you've never really understood it then maybe now's your time maybe today's the day you get this oh you know what i just thought what's that sorry you were like getting ready well i was just thinking he's the word giving the invitation jesus is the word you know yeah and he writes your name in the book right he's the word (sighs) if he's the word yeah mind blown i get (laughs) it if he's the word that god spoke which brought everything into existence then he's the word that spoke your name into the, into all of eternity yeah. to the book of life. It yeah, is kind of good. amazing. You know, I'm going to go ahead and do the silly thing because you were going there in a way. And so I'm going to go there too. But remember in elf when somebody <laughs> says something about Santa and he <laughs> says, I know him. Yes. I remember every, I know it well. Maybe Jesus will do it with the same joy because at the great white throne judgment, he's going to be going down the list and he'll say, Bethany Sinkhorn, I know her. Yeah, I think I'll be doing that. You know, I think every time he Because as much as I love Santa, I love Jesus a lot more and I will probably be freaking out. So every time Jesus reads a name from the book of life, he's going to say, I know him. I know her. That's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And what I started to say was, is, is your name in the book? And and don't overthink this. Just understand that the less of you there is, the more ease there is for the Spirit to come in and lead you right to that throne of grace. So, 
you can do this a lot of ways. Some denominations, some Christians will be very formulaic about it. They'll have you pray the sinner's prayer, da-da-da-da-da. I'm just going to tell you plain and simple. Just tell God that you want to be in the book of life and ask him to lead you through to a place where you get it. You know, ask him to take you there. He will. Mm -hmm. Because when he hears that you want what he has sacrificed so much to give you, he's going to give it to you. You can be sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you need a little help, give me a call. I think that's also something you can keep praying even if you feel pretty confident. Sure. Because you can say, I know my name's in the book of life, but I need you to keep helping me through because everybody's on a journey. Well, sure. Everybody's trying to. Well, so I was having a conversation and... with one of my staff friends today at the church, and it sort of slipped into a question of whether we were talking about works based salvation, you know, and I said, look, Jesus is going to judge our works having after we've been saved. In other words, he's he's going to give us a scorecard is what he's going to do. He's going to give you he's going to give you your grade. He's going to give you your report card. He's going to say, you know, you you automatically pass because of me. But I'm I'm anxious to tell you how I think you did with what I gave you. And so our works aren't meant to save us. Our works are meant to be things that please Jesus because uh, the first John, I can't remember what chapter, says that, that when Jesus makes his judgment of the saints, the worst thing that can happen there is that you would disappoint him. And that really ought to bother you because when you really love and admire and respect somebody, you don't want to disappoint them. And who could you most, who's the last person you want to disappoint? Well, Jesus. So when we're supposed to do our best to emulate him and be like him and he didn't sit around. No. He was constantly doing works for others. No, that's so. right. Well, what else you want to say about chapter 20? We have two chapters left. We have chapter two chapters Chapter left. 21 is really short. It's yeah. going to fly. Yeah. So... You know, we've been asking people for quite some time to give us suggestions. I haven't heard any. Um, so you and I need to start praying and figure out what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, one thing we could say is, and this really depends on you listeners, is we could take a podcast and deal with questions you have, comments you have, parts of Revelation you'd like us to go back and mm -hmm. revisit. We can do that, but we have to hear it from you. Yeah. And listen, if you're one of those people that tells me on Sunday morning that you have a question or something about the podcast, please write it down. I'm telling you, Sunday mornings are very difficult for me as far as con uh, keeping up with, with everybody's comments, questions, and otherwise. You know, a hundred people, hundreds of people talk to me on Sunday morning, and I, I really need it in writing. So if you have something you want us to go back to, we might have sort of a, a debriefing podcast where we finish the book and then we spend one podcast just dealing with follow-up questions and that sort of thing. The but, Revelation After Show. Yeah, the After Show. There you go. So we need you to get busy and tell us if that's what you want us to do. And if you don't give us anything, we don't hear from you. We're just going to assume that you liked it just as it is 
And, and I know some of you haven't gotten to this episode yet, and, and I, I understand that. But, uh, but if you are one of those that's been listening every week because it pops up in your subscription box every week or every time we do it, you know, then you are ones we really need to hear from because for the sake of the others, you know, you can, you can do this because you know how it is with most Q&A sessions. One person asks a question that several had on their mind, so it, it'll work. And then, uh, you know, we're going to come up with something to do next unless you give us some suggestions. So, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. Bethany, you got anything else you want to say to our friends? Mm, I can't think of anything. Well, we love you. We sure appreciate the honor of, of being in your heads. I know some of you are walking or something with your headphones on, and I'm in your head. That's creepy. But uh, think of Bethany. But uh, <laughs> That's not better. <laughs> well, between the two of us, it is. God bless you, and goodbye.